Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, we're revisiting our conversation with writer and activist, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. She's the host of the podcast, Undistracted. She's also an MSNBC analyst and a former member of both President Obama's 21st Century Policing Task Force and the Ferguson Commission. It was there in Ferguson, Missouri, that you may have first learned of Brittany's work. In the aftermath of the unjust killing of Michael Brown by police officer Darren Wilson, Brittany became a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement. We sat down last year, about a month after the insurrection. She actually lives four or five blocks away from the Capitol and remembers the day in painstaking detail. Now, I wanted to replay this talk with Brittany, not only because of the one-year anniversary of that fateful day, but because she offers something that I feel is missing right now. Perspective. I don't know about you, but everyone in my life right now is anxious, angry, underslept, and overworked. People want life to return to the way it was. They want schools to reopen safely. They want the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. They want to stop spending so much time on their phones and on the internet, but can't seem to quit either, especially as human contact becomes increasingly fraught. If you're listening and feel the same, you're not alone. I feel it too, and, and not just because I'm recording this intro inside a small closet in my apartment. 
although that's not helping. But perspective, which I think Brittany offers in this talk, is what gets us out of bed. It's what gets us through to the other side of this moment, this pandemic. Her perspective, especially around the insurrection, racial justice, activism, imperfect allies, is one I really needed to hear when we sat down in 2021. But in re-listening, I don't know, something happened. It felt even more urgent and inspiring today than it did then. Brittany's work is plenty inspiring, but I'm more curious about what she inspires in you and I away from this conversation. We're going to get through this, not with anxiety and anger, but action. Until then, please take care of yourself. I know these are trying times. Be kind to others when and where you can. We'll be back next week with new episodes of Talk Easy. For today, here is Brittany Packnick Cunningham. Brittany. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing? I am. I'm a little tired. Always a good way to start a podcast. Yeah, always. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's interesting. I've been really public about my own mental health journey and my deep belief in the power of therapists. And in multiple conversations with my own therapist over the last few weeks, I realized that the latest bout of insomnia that I have been dealing with, which I've been dealing with off and on, frankly, since the pandemic hit, but it has gotten very, very bad in the last few weeks, that actually what probably triggered it was the insurrection. I I only live about 10 minutes from the Capitol. So I tried to leave my house that day, and my husband and I ended up coming fully into, like, the edge of it. And so we saw, you know police that were, metro police that were staging. We rode past this kind of caravan of Trump trucks with like the flags and the don't tread on me stuff on there. And I was like, we were like four or five blocks from our home. And I think because of everything that I've been through in my life and the kind of work that I do, I did not expect it to have as much of an effect on me emotionally and psychologically as it has until I talked with my therapist and realized I probably haven't dealt with all of the other stuff either, right? Like all the the ways we were treated in protest, the tear gassing and the pepper spray and the running for our lives and not knowing if your friends are going to make it and having your friends arrested for, you know, being audacious and Black and honest. Like all of these things, um, I probably just kept moving through. And so I think some of my some of the bracing that my psyche is doing without even my knowledge is because we know what happens when treasonous, seditionist white supremacists are not held accountable. And let's talk about those rioters for a second. As I know you've seen, the press has tried to offer answers as to why this storming of the Capitol happened. Mm -hmm. Now, many have pointed to the financial inequities of these rioters as a way of solving the mystery of January 6th, as if the why and the how isn't clear by now. (laughs) But you wrote something I liked this past week. You said, white supremacy is not a mystery. 
And if financial inequities turn people into insurrectionists, don't you think black and brown folks who are systemically and disproportionately in low-income circumstances would have raided the capital long before? Stop this. Stop the economic anxiety talk. If these folks had real economic anxiety, they wouldn't keep picking the party of the 1%. Yeah, I mean, white supremacy is not a mystery, especially not in a country where the founding experiment was white supremacy. It justified, in their minds, the genocide of indigenous people and the thieving of their land. It justified, in their mind, the thieving of bodies and labor from enslaved Africans. It has continued to justify, in a lot of people's minds, the closing of borders that were open to their own European ancestors, but should be closed to people from the global south, in their mind. It is the, it's the same thing that has justified Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and the retort that all lives matter when someone would dare say Black Lives Matter. White supremacy is not a mystery. It is the organizing principle of the United States of America. So to act like we don't know what it looks like when it rams the door of a federal building is not only asinine, it's dangerous. Because then it leaves space for people to be surprised about tales that are hundreds of years old. And when people are surprised about things that are hundreds of years old, they will take their sweet time fixing it. We don't have any time to waste. I mean, Dr. King was saying that wait almost always means never, what, 60 years ago almost? You know, LBJ in the same era was talking about the fact that if you tell poor white people that there is no lot worse than being Black, then to use his words, you can pick their pockets and they won't care. They won't even notice. This is a tale as old as time. And I think that especially in media spaces, which you and I both occupy, we have to be relentless in doing with the United States Senate. And to be specific, the incredibly cowardly pack of Republicans that currently sit in federal elected office failed to do, which is to tell the truth of what has happened and to do our level best to make sure that nobody ever forgets it, especially as an election year comes up, especially as people set policies in their hometowns and in their states and especially as we do our best not to repeat the aftermath of the Civil War, when Andrew Johnson pardoned all of the Confederate soldiers and pardoned Jefferson Davis. And, you know, Davis's supporters said they didn't want a trial because they wanted the country to heal. I mean, it is almost verbatim what we are hearing people say now in their justification for not convicting this man. And so much of the evil that continued after this Civil War is due in part because no one was held accountable. And so I I just, we have to be doing our job to make sure that history doesn't get repeated because clearly Senate Republicans weren't willing to do their job. I think to better understand your entry point into this fight, I want to go to 1994 for a moment. I know. Is that okay? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, you're taking me back. I said 1994 and you went, oh my God. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's only because I'm 36 now, and and the the older I get, the more I realize that 1994, the year 2000, was not like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's all just quite stunning. But continue. In 1994, you find yourself with your father at a mall. Mm -hmm. Your father at the time and until his passing in 1996 was uh, a pastor of Central Baptist Church, originally called the Second African Baptist Church in St. Louis, which was founded in 1846 by 23 enslaved and free Black folks. Mm -hmm. And in 94, you are 10 years old, and you're at a mall with your dad, and your dad has called one of his contacts at a local news station Mm -hmm. to do a story about, of all things, I think, the Santa Clauses. Yep. At the mall. Yeah. Walk me through this moment. So what you have to understand about the house that I was raised in is that two things were always going to be true. That we were going to worship Jesus and that we were going to celebrate being Black. And that was all the time, every day, nonstop. In the best ways. In ways that made me feel affirmed as a young person, in ways that really helped me straighten my back when I would enter predominantly white spaces, which I was being educated in, to know my value, both in the context of my faith and the context of my personhood. And so what that means is that the role models that I was raised with, including, let me be very clear, Jesus the Christ, (laughs) were people with dark skin, with black skin, with brown skin. I genuinely did not recognize a white Jesus the first time I had seen him because my parents were so deliberate to only show myself and later my brother depictions of Christ that were biblically accurate, right? Which is woolly hair and brown skin. And of course, that were, you know, accurate to the geography at the time. So I'm walking into 1994 as a 10-year-old with like a fully Afrocentric view of the world, that was built very intentionally. So when I enter spaces where I do not see Black people, even at 10 years old, I have a level of curiosity that causes me to critically question it. And I am deeply grateful to my parents for raising me that way. So I'm like, I don't really understand. Because Santa at church is always Black, because Santa is like my dad or, you know, Deacon so-and-so who's playing Santa. I know Christmas is about Jesus, but I also, you know, I want to take a picture with Santa too. And I'm confused as to why Santa is always this old white dude. Like, I really genuinely don't get it. And yeah, people can talk about the origins of Santa Claus and da-da-da-da, but we all know that culture takes on many forms. You know, much iconography throughout history has morphed and changed and evolved to meet the moment of ever more diverse societies. And in 1994, in St. Louis, yes, there were Black and brown people living in this city too. So we had that conversation and it was kind of like, well, what do you, you know, what are we going to do about it? And I, I'm glad that I was raised by people who always asked that question. What are we going to do about it? And so, yeah, we demanded Black Santas at the mall. We did some mini protesting in there. There was news coverage. My dad wrote columns about it. I I think that's one of my first memories of being on the news. (laughs) Um, So I did a news interview about it, and we got Black Santas at the mall. (laughs) End of story. (laughs) No, it's not the end of the story. 
there's something else that happens <laughs> mm-hmm. that I think directly ties to this kind of curiosity we've been hearing in the news about these white insurrectionists, people who are saying, yeah, well, maybe they had financial troubles. Maybe the poverty, <laughs> maybe the poverty led them to these decisions. And I, and I bring them up again because I think they are inextricably linked to your classmates at that age. Mm. Because you went back to school that next week. Yeah. After you did the protest. And some of your friends, many of whom were white at this school, said to you, I don't understand. <laughs> it's Santa. It's just yeah. Santa. Because it's never just about Santa, right? It when you I never thought you and I would say these Santa sentences. <laughs> Me either. And here we are. You know, it is, it's never just about the precipitating factor. It's never just about the thing that provoked you in that moment to action. It is always about the systems and structures and institutions that made it this way. So what we were really protesting is this idea that white is the default and that everyone else should adjust to it. And you see whiteness as the default in everything. For a long time, and still in many places, you see it when you go to buy a Band-Aid. You see it when you study history. You see it when you think about your own archetypes of who should be in charge. Which is why Kamala Devi Harris and Barack Obama were the only people to change the singular color scheme of American executives, and they both happened in our lifetime. What we were really protesting is the idea that whiteness is the norm, that everything should orbit that, and that everyone should adjust to it. That is not the organizing principle of my life. It certainly shouldn't be the organizing principle of anybody's life because the organizing principle should be justice at all times, whether it is in something that looks small to you, like Santa Claus or a Band-Aid, or in something as major as who occupies the White House, what experiences and ideas they bring with them, and most importantly, who they legislate for. So, yeah, it was never just about Santa. The idea was always that if I live here and I am a human being just like you and I'm your friend and your neighbor and your classmate, then I should see myself everywhere just like you do. How did it make you feel at age 10 when your friends are saying, I don't know what the big deal is? I mean, it is it is invalidating, right? This is part of how oppression manifests itself. It's becoming more a part of the common lexicon. We talk about microaggressions, right? And this is one of those microaggressions. It's a micro-invalidation. Other micro-invalidations include seeing someone who, quote-unquote, looks foreign to you and asking them where they are from, or hearing someone with an accent and asking them how they learned to speak English so well. It is these things that invalidate your personhood and the things that matter to you and minimizes and diminishes them. I got invalidated like that, you know, in those microwaves when I would be at a pool party with my friends and I couldn't get my hair wet. And they're like, oh, it's just hair. And I'm like, (laughs) no, baby, it's not. (laughs) This hairstyle has to last all week. And if I come to school looking anything but perfectly coughed about the hair, if if my hair isn't straight or neat or professional as you would define it, and if my hair shrivels and shrinks in this water and I am forced to deal with that, you are going to start looking at me a different way. So it's actually not 
just water. It's not just a pool party, right? These were not new feelings. What I will say was a formative, a more formative feeling in that moment, though, was just the feeling of power, right? It was like, we said we wanted Black Santa Clauses. That was my first experience, one of my first experiences, organizing for something outside of my own school and winning. At that point, I was like, it, it ain't really nothing you can tell me because we got them Black Santas, so now what do you have to say? <laughs> there's, there's nothing you can tell me. We won. So, you know, go back to your worksheet. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> but basically what you're saying is, even at that age, you knew you had to be excellent. Yep. And I wonder, did that and does that, like, wear at you? Um, I think that addiction to perfectionism is whew, something a lot of us have to unlearn. I think it is a particularly Western and Americanized ideal that we are highly individualistic and therefore we're not supposed to need anyone else. And in that individualism that we are supposed to be excellent and perfect at all times. And I think that that has been weaponized in particular ways against folks from marginalized communities. So, you know, it's funny, a, a couple of years ago when Scandal was all the rage, and really the only time at that time I was using Twitter was to, like, live-tweet Scandal, there was an episode where Olivia Pope's father says to her, you know, I always told you that you had to be two, three times as good to get half as far. And I had all of these white people on my feed and in my life who were like, Oh my God, I've never heard this. What a revelation. This is awful. Da 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 da. And I, all the black folks I knew were like, uh, yeah, duh. This is, I, what, where is the mystery here? I mean, I'm confused why you're confused. Um, <laughs> because of course, this is the way it, it has been. And I had to have some upfront conversations with white people in my life to say, like, here are some of the ways that you have perpetuated that and didn't even realize it. Here are some of the ways that I have perpetuated that with other Black people because I have internalized that idea and I didn't even realize it. So there are things that I need to unlearn and undo, just like there are things that white folks need to unlearn and undo because of the way that I've internalized that. So yeah, of course it can be exhausting. I do think that the power of the conversations we're having more broadly now can help us undo our addiction to busyness and to perfection. So um, on, on my podcast on Undistracted a few weeks ago, I talked to Trisha Hersey, who founded the NAP ministry. She calls herself the, the NAP bishop. And she says two things consistently. One, that rest is everyone's divine right. <laughs> so this idea that we have to be busy all the time because we owe capitalism something is a lie that we've all gotten sold. But also, on top of that, that rest is a form of resistance to white supremacy. So when I choose to not be all things to all people, when I choose to be a Black woman not concerned with saving democracy for everybody, but saving democracy for the most marginalized, knowing that it will benefit everybody, that that is an act of resistance. And I do think that there is something beautiful about how the people who love me and have raised me have helped me redefine what excellence looks like. That especially for Black folks, we recognize that our, our love and our families and our community is wealth. And so going and chasing these external forms of wealth are actually, that's not the gift. That's not the prize. The prize 
are all of the people and places that I can occupy that respect my rest, that want my rest, that help me rest. And that is redefining excellence in ways that elevate how I treat other people and how I allow other people to treat me and how I show up in love and how I welcome other people when they show up in love for me. That is a journey that I'm still on, but I'm grateful for it being a cultural marker that I think redefines how excellence has been weaponized against us. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. And market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. 
smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Your job is that of constant engagement on your podcast, on network television, on the streets in protest. But I think also part of that engagement is this public processing mm-hmm. that you do of events that most of us sit with in private, mm-hmm. in our homes, in our apartments, a police shooting, a Capitol riot, mm-hmm. blatant exercises of of racism and, and racial inequity. These are things most people sit with by themselves or with their friends or their family. Yeah. And yet for many years now, you have been processing these traumas, this pain in public. How do you manage that? That is a fantastic question. And I appreciate the way that it honors the labor that is very (laughs) intensive (laughs) about learning in public, as I always say, engaging in public about really challenging things. One of the things I have learned better, I'm not perfect at it, but one of the things I've learned better, especially over the last few years, is to be very judicious and picky about what I engage with. And it can look like I'm engaging all the time, but I'm actually not. I will tell you, (laughs) I got an invitation just yesterday to be on Michael Cohen's podcast. Michael Cohen being, of course, the former Trump lawyer. And now I I had no idea until I got this outreach that he's got a podcast that is literally, I kid you not, called Mea Culpa. And he spends all of his time trashing Donald Trump and Trumpism, which is a monster that he helped build. So I declined, as you can imagine, because it is actually not worth my time to process with Michael Cohen. (laughs) It is not worth me giving him the gift of my credibility in the spaces where I have credibility. I'm not lending that to him. He can do his mea culpas on his time, not on mine. So I'm actually really choosy about this stuff. I don't comment on everything that is trending. I don't feel like I have to answer to every controversy that people are talking about. And it took me a long time to get there because for a long time, I felt like I owed people that. And what I realized is what I actually owed people was living out my purpose. And I believe that my purpose is to speak and teach truth that moves people to action, not just to outrage, not just to retweets, not just to follows, but to action. That requires me to be really responsible with how I use my platforms, with what I spend my time on and with what I don't spend my time on. So I've had people ask me to debate Black conservatives, and I'm like, no. A, because that's not worth my time, and B, because if I say yes to that, I am affirming the idea that systemic racism is debatable and it is not up for debate. In learning to become more in control of it, that's how I deal with it. Yeah, it is It is an ever-evolving process as to how I do that kind of engagement, but I am always keeping in mind to the purpose that I owe myself and others to live out the values that I try to have in public and in private, and the safety 
of myself and, and, you know, the people and communities that I care about. You have been a source of inspiration for many, many people over the years. I appreciate that. You've also been a source of inspiration for a lot of white people. (laughs) Which is somewhat surprising to me all the time, but not always. Uh, The way I said it, it almost sounds like a derogatory comment. It's it's (laughs) not. (laughs) I didn't take it that way. I'm not like you inspired white people. This is a bad thing. Um, (laughs) No, what I mean by that is there are a lot of white folks who, who look to you as a kind of guiding light in this fight for racial equality. And... As is the case when people are learning, people make mistakes. (laughs) Yeah. They mistweet, they misquote, they misunderstand, they take things personally. And I wonder, in this kind of new era as we shift away from Trump, is it possible for us to accept those imperfect allies? Is it possible for us to learn and fail in public and then grow in public. I mean, I certainly hope so because I myself am an imperfect co-conspirator to many communities to which I do not belong, but I, you know, believe deeply in their freedom. But I will say in response to imperfect white people, what I say to myself and have had other people say to me as an imperfect, imperfect cisgender person, a perfect, an imperfect, rather, you know, able-bodied person, et cetera, that um, grace and accountability have to meet at an intersection. I am not Jesus the Christ, therefore my grace is not sufficient and (laughs) uh, unending, right? In case anyone was confused, you are not Jesus the Christ. (laughs) Definitely not. Uh, My grace is limited, right, as a human being. And I try my best to show as much grace to other people as I would want shown to me, But I also recognize that the best apology is changed behavior. And that when people give you feedback, even if it is painful, if it can contribute to your growth, then it is a gift. And treating it that way can help us, right? When we get gifts, we don't just toss them aside. We don't get defensive at the person who gives them to us. We don't say, how dare you give me this thing that can help me live a better life? No, we say, thank you. And we decide what we're going to do with it because the gift is useful, because the gift came from a a place of humanity. I have had gracious, thoughtful, sweet, kind, considerate feedback given to me. And I've had really harsh feedback given to me. And instead of me getting defensive, I have had to push myself to say, let's take a step in the person's shoes who's offering me that feedback because maybe they're tired of having to give people like me that feedback. Maybe they're tired of having to keep pressing up against systems that don't want to listen to their feedback. So maybe instead of policing their tone or their their communication, I can receive it as the gift that it is. Offer my apology, recognize that they can take it or not take it, that is perfectly within their right, but that I owe it to myself and the communities that I say I care about to change my behavior. So, yeah, we can accept imperfect allies as long as they are constantly improving allies, as long as they are constantly evolving allies. Allies who are in stasis are no allies at all. Can I go to a moment where I think you exhibited some grace in your past? Sure. Again, to go back to the 90s, our favorite era here. (laughs) In 1998, you are going to this Midwestern high school again in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, you created, at the age of 15, the first 
diversity organization in your high school? Co-created, we should say. There are about a dozen of us. Yeah. You co-created <laughs> the first diversity organization. My apologies to your co-creators at the time. All good. It was met with praise from professors. Uh, many classmates galvanized, supported, and appreciated the work you and your co-collaborators created. There was, however, <laughs> one student who saw your work as, as you say, an existential threat to his way of life and inflated ego. Yeah. But it wasn't just an existential threat. He turned it into a physical one and retaliated when one day at school near the women's locker room, he spat on you. And I know it is a painful moment to revisit but how do you think of that moment now, all these years removed? I think of both of us as products of our environment. It just so happens that the environment was built for him and it wasn't built for me. So there were many differences between the two of us. He was white. I am not. He is male. I am not. He came from great wealth. I do not. His father was on the board of trustees. My mother was not. She was a widow at the time. He came from a family who could afford to pay the thousands of dollars in tuition that it cost to go to this private school every year, and I did not. My mother made a great living and worked very hard and is very well-educated. But we went from a two-income household to a one-income household. When my dad passed when I was in the seventh grade, and so we also had scholarships. And so we were both the products of our environment, and our environment was far more hostile to me and far more supportive of him. So there is this world in which he stands out in the context of our school in a lot of people's minds as an extreme, right? That no one would have taken to the extremes of spitting at me as he did, of harassing me as he did, of showing no remorse for it as he did, uh, both then and now. And... I also know that the seeds of what he believed were nurtured in an environment that um, did its best by diversity and equity and inclusion, but literally most schools across this country have yet to divorce themselves from the culture of white supremacy. And so there was no time when he got dismissed as anything more than, like, that really annoying guy. I think what's important to understand is that at no point before this incident where he spits at me had there been any accountability for a bunch of the bigoted things that he had said and done to around our school. So why is he going to believe that this overt act of racism, this overt assault, is going to be any more or less punishable than any of the other things he did. And it turns out he was 100% right. It wasn't punishable. There was no expulsion. There was no suspension. There was a clenched mouth apology and everybody went on about their business. I think of myself at the time as somebody who, as the product of the same environment, was trying to make sense of what it meant to experience backlash for using your voice. Because as I said, I had grown up in a very affirming environment. And my elementary school, even though it was predominantly white, I'd say was more advanced in the conversation about diversity and equity than most schools in the 90s. In some ways, I had had this very advanced elementary school experience. Both of my parents are living and they are augmenting all of the Afrocentricity that I don't receive at school 
they're doing that at home. And by the time he spits at me, I've got a single mother who is now a widow, who is trying to raise two children in a now a much more, you know, confusing environment. And I'm now at a school where the same kind of progressivism, if you will, around issues of diversity and equity are just not present. So it's not that I was always supported in everything that I fought for. Like you said, I got plenty of questions of it's just Santa Claus. But this was certainly the most extreme case I had ever experienced. So I'm like an ad, I'm a teenager trying to figure out what it means to say, I believe in raising my voice. I believe in standing up for what matters. I believe in always asking myself that question that my parents have always asked me, what are we going to do about it? And I now need to understand that the backlash that comes in return will sometimes be real and swift and dangerous. And in some in some really sick way, it prepared me for a lot of what I have endured over the last few years. You're describing someone who committed other offenses. Yeah. And, and did this knowing correctly that he wouldn't be punished. Yeah. And you're describing a 15-year-old acne face boy. I'm assuming he has acne. <laughs> I, I'm giving him acne. In my, in my retelling, he has acne. And you're describing what happened in the last two weeks in this country. Yeah, because those people grow up and they join the Proud Boys <laughs> and they become seditionists and they run for president <laughs> and they fund people like Donald Trump um, and they write for Breitbart and they work for Fox News like this guy does, right? Like there is a clear and direct line between that kind of behavior then and white supremacy now. And woe to all of us who have any contact with young people, especially young people of any kind of privilege, who do not teach them early on that the world does not belong to them, that we are not going to orbit around your whiteness or your manhood or your straightness or your cisgenderness or your Christianity, that actually the way the world should function is that all of us are able to thrive and not simply survive in the face of your selfishness. That story you just recounted, you wouldn't say it aloud for many years. Yeah, I didn't. I kind of swallowed it up. Yeah. It wasn't until 14 years later, Mm -hmm. at the age of 29, that you're asked by your high school to speak at the assembly hall. And you stood there at 29 in a kind of odd full circle moment. And I wonder now, what did you say to those kids? It's so interesting because... I've been speaking publicly for a long time. Like when you're when your parents are preachers, you <laughs> let's say grow up in an oratory tradition. That was a polite way of saying it. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Polite uh, way of saying it. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, listen, I got I heard good preaching every Sunday. Sometimes I got preached at when my room wasn't clean every Monday. Right. So <laughs> I mean, this is and I come from a, a tradition of just rich storytelling, right? That is that is African American culture. So, like, making speeches for me at this point, at 29, when I'm standing in this assembly hall, is old hat. Not just because of the way I've been raised, but because I used to make speeches in high school at that same assembly hall, at that same podium, about the issues of diversity that he then spat at me <laughs> over, right? It is full circle in all of the ways. 
in part because I I tried three different times to write remarks and I couldn't get any of them out. And my mentor, who's still at the school, who was the person who encouraged me to actually say something to the head of school when this when this originally occurred, he was the one who had asked me back to assembly and I hit him up that morning and I was like, Coach Harris, I have no idea what to say. Coach Harris and I both come from the same faith background. Actually, my dad was one of his professors of Black church history. And so he was like, look, God's got it. Whatever is supposed to come up will come up and it'll come out. You're more than prepared. Just come on to assembly. Because at this point, it's like, if I if I sit down and write anything, I'll be late. I'll miss the whole speech. So I get up there. And the thing that comes out of my mouth is this story. And I remember hearing the audible gasp of young people aged 7th grade through 12th grade. I remember hearing the gasp of the head of school who wasn't the head of school when this happened, but is now. And, you know, he and I have a relationship because he was my 12th grade principal. I'm hearing the gasps of faculty members that taught me when I went to school there. And in one way, I was relieved because I didn't realize how heavy this thing was until I let it go. And in other ways, I was frustrated with myself that I had held on to the story for so long because every year that I held on to that story was another year that people could think that it could never happen there. Like it was another year that added to that shock and awe. And I'm sitting there going, this is not, this should not be shocking to you all. If it is shocking to you, I wonder which students you've been listening to, which parents you've been hearing from, which alumni you've been talking to. And sure enough, after that day, Coach Harris reached back out to me, you know, a week or two later saying that suddenly more students of color, Black students in particular, were talking about some of their experiences at the school. They were writing about them in the student newspaper. And so in some ways, it was a real moment of freedom for me. And I am grateful that the moment of freedom for me became a little bit of freedom for other people both Black students and students of color who had been suffering silently, as I had for so many years, and for white faculty and school leadership and students who needed to be free from the myth of their own perfection. So for me, the victory really laid in what I was freeing up other people to do. I think that when we are our full selves, we give other people permission to do the same. And here was a part of myself that I was sitting silent for years. And when I gave voice to that pain, that sadness, that frustration, it, you know, unlocked some things for some other people. So it's not the whole win, but I'll take that win. If we are our full selves, then we give other people permission to be their full selves. Yeah, we give them the permission. And in May of 1975, Toni Morrison spoke on a panel at Portland State, mm-hmm. where I think anyone listening would say she gave her full self. And in turn, a passage of the speech has inspired uh, you and your podcast. And if you don't mind, I would like to listen to some of it. Sure. It's important, therefore, to know who the real enemy is and to know the function, the very serious function of racism, which is distraction. It keeps you 
from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and so you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says that you have no art so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms and so you dredge that up. None of that is necessary. There will always be one more thing. Ah, oh, I love her so much. What did that make you think of? I mean, first of all, it just makes me... It makes me glad to know that she is resting peacefully and powerfully because she, ugh, everything she gave us was such a gift, including and especially that. So so we, to your point, named our podcast Undistracted from this idea that the point of racism, the point of oppression, the point of systemic injustice is to keep us from doing our work. So what if we get undistracted? What if we actually remain focused on the issues at hand? What if we remain focused on our own goodness, on our own glory? What if we remain focused not on the people who tick us off, but the systems that harm us and not just focus on what they're doing to us, but focus on how we can uproot and recreate the things that actually work for us, right? Focus on how we can imagine um, and dream and build and create. What if we actually built a podcast that gave people the space to do that? in really tangible, informative, activating ways. Like, what? just what could that do in the world, right? Whether there are 10 listeners or 100,000, what can that do in the world to try to build a coalition of undistracted people? And what I really appreciate about Toni Morrison is that she understood that there is no need to prove anything because being alive is proof enough. Being alive and in black skin and living and loving and learning and doing all of the things that people do is more than enough. That that actually doesn't require explanation or justification, despite how the centeredness of whiteness would like us to think that it does. Right? This is what I meant earlier when I said the organizing principle of America is a white supremacy that declares white supremacy to be the default, the center, that we're all supposed to orbit around that. What if we all (laughs) retracted our tacit approval of said system and said, actually, no, I don't. When I think of all that Toni Morrison gave us, and it was many, many, many things, that for me is one of the most profound because it pushes me every single day to live in and act out of my divinity, which we all have, instead of out of some desire to prove that I am human enough to people who are never going to believe it. At the beginning of this conversation, you said, I'm bracing myself for the door that has been opened by the Biden-Harris administration. A door that I think we can all describe as one that we had to jam ourselves through (laughs) it's it's still only slightly ajar and as someone who is helping shape this fight where do you see us going so you know for the last four years we've had somebody that like unified a lot of us (laughs) out of our shared hatred (laughs) of the things and the horrors and the injustices that were being perpetuated by this administration It's really easy to publicly critique 
and go off on Trump and associates. It is harder to say to a party that you may be part of, to say to people that you may have voted for, to say to people that you love, this doesn't go as far as we need it to go. It is harder to get into the details and the weeds to say, okay, we the rhetoric got us across the first finish line of the election. So now how do we get together in all of our forms and actually make the promises come true at all levels, at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level? That requires organizing. That requires all of us deciding that we are going to be active participants in democracy for more than, you know, once every four years. It requires that we link up with local or national organizing outlets that are pushing on the things that you care about. It requires that, yes, we say we can do more. So when I look, for example, at the the CNN town hall that just came out with Joe Biden, and he says that he's not going to cancel $50,000 of student debt, and he's going to means test that according to where the student went to school, that students from more elite universities, you know, may not qualify, et cetera, et cetera. We have to be able to say, I'm vo- I voted for you and I'm glad I did. However, I voted for better conditions to organize for the things that I want. My friend Kayla Reese says that all the time. And the conditions are such that we pry the door open a bit. And now what I want to see walk through is a level of student debt cancellation that is not means tested into oblivion, that is not traded in exchange for early childhood education as if there is not enough money for both because there is. And that actually helps eliminate some of the racial wealth gaps that exist for people of color and the wealth gaps that exist for people who couldn't even afford to finish college but still have this debt. So they don't have the benefit of the degree, but they still have the debt saddling them, right? So I don't believe that $10,000 goes enough. I believe that that $50,000 plan is actually the right plan. I believe that it is helpful for the economy. And even as a person who has paid back all of my student loans, I still believe that other people shouldn't have to go through this. I believe that people should come out of college and actually have a fair shot at life. And that requires that they're not saddled with so much debt, that they're, they're taking any job that they can just to be able to pay that back for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. That kind of critical friendship is where I hope we go. That kind of honesty, that kind of radical honesty that makes all of us better, even if the person in power is not someone that we all collectively can't stand. I'm hoping that we learn the kind of discipline and nuance and long-term organizing and engagement that it will require to get the things that we want and that we deserve, even from the people who agree with us more often than not. To bring this full circle, you were a very good student in college, but then during the first semester of your senior year, you decide to take a leave of absence. Mm -hmm. And in that leave of absence, you intern for Congressman Lacey Clay. Mm -hmm. And you said of that time, it just felt like a whole new world opened up for me and that I opened up myself for the first time in a long time. And this idea that social justice could be something I made a living at I was reminded of the power of my family's legacy and that I could carry on that mantle, that I didn't have to wallow 
in the depths of what I was feeling, that I could actually live for something greater than myself. And that really helped me pull me out of where I was. Yeah. That I didn't have to wallow in the depths of what I was feeling. That, to me, if we are to move forward, has to be all of our refrains. It has to be all of our refrains and, not but, we have to um, we have to let ourselves be human in the midst of that. I think one of the things I'm learning in choosing justice work as my life's work is that one of the greatest things I can do for myself and hopefully for other people is to create justice through the fullness of our humanity. And to a point you made earlier, other people get to deal with the hard stuff in private. And I am somebody who, in people's private moments of dealing with the hard stuff, they will look to to help them figure it out. So I have also been doing my best, especially as of late, to, in all of these platforms, be fully human. Like when something is funny, to laugh. (laughs) When I feel like I look good, to take a picture of it and post it, even if it doesn't have some other social justice meaning, right? To be sad and tired when I'm sad and tired. I think the more I let myself do that, the easier it is not to wallow because I can actually process it. I can actually live through it instead of try to skip over it. Skipping over it doesn't actually do us any favors. But I'm trying to build a world where a Black girl can be more than a symbol, where a Black woman can be more than a depository for someone's guilt (laughs) or a source of someone's learning, where like you can follow me on Instagram and be just as excited about this Ivy Park picture as you are about whatever thing I said about Ronald Reagan and the lessons that it teaches us about white supremacy, right? Like I'm trying to create a world where thriving is possible for all of us because we can all be and be fully. That is justice to me. And it always will be. And how do you keep going? (laughs) Um, I love that laugh. That's great. (laughs) <laughs> there's the answer right there because so, some days right because some days I don't know but uh, you know there are people who are fighting harder and sacrificing more than me every day and I, I really try to keep that perspective both from generations past and from this generation I try to keep perspective that people may know my name because of the Ferguson uprising but Leslie McSpadden and Mike Brown Sr. will never be able to hug their child again and that the very thing that may have thrust me and dozens of other people into a national conversation and reckoning on race seven years ago started because parents lost their children, because a life was stolen, because a grandmother lost her grandchild, because friends lost their friend. And it happened again and again and again and again and again. Like people ask me all the time, like, who founded the movement? I'm like, Mike Brown, Sandra Bland, Trayvon Martin, Rakia Boyd, Tony McDade. All of these people have paid with their literal life to force this country into having the conversations it should have been having all along. So perspective helps. Therapy helps. (laughs) Prayer helps. My husband helps. And determining for myself that freedom is in living a full life and not just in freeing other people, that helps. Well, I hope this conversation has helped just a little bit. It has. Thank you for such a thoughtful conversation. I really appreciate it. Brittany Packna Cunningham, anytime. Thank you. Be well.
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Mark Paskin, Tabitha Williams, and of course, Brittany Packnick Cunningham. Be sure to check out her podcast, Undistracted, wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to hear more conversations like the one you just heard, I'd recommend our talks with Dr. Cornell West, Jenea Future Khan, Representative Ilhan Omar, Gloria Steinem, Noam Chomsky, and Winnie Bianima. To hear those and more Pushkin programs, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or buy our record with Fran Leibowitz. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. Of course, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Chenixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara. It was mixed by Andre Lynn and Andrew Vestola. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee. Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringus. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We're back next Sunday with a new episode featuring Alana Hyam. We're looking forward to sharing that with you. Until then, rest in peace to the late, great Peter Bogdanovich, and of course, Mr. Sidney Poitier. You both, in your own singular ways, will be missed. And for you at home, stay safe, and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.